As we've been working our way through the narrative of this case, we have touched upon the fact that the best trial attorneys are, at their core, storytellers. Granted, they are storytellers that have a firm grasp on the rules of evidence, which gives them the ability to know what they can and cannot say during a trial, especially in a jury trial. But know this, it's not a free-for-all in the courtroom, and nearly every fictionalized court-related TV show and movie that you see is a gross misrepresentation of what actually goes on and is allowable within the courtroom itself. You see, the entertainment industry concerns itself mostly with high drama for effect when drafting a script. Now, I'm sure that many of your favorite shows use an attorney consultant that tells the writers what actually can happen in a courtroom and what can't. The writers then give the lawyers a hearty handshake or a pat on the back and then proceed to ignore nearly everything that they were just told. And they write their script the way they see fit, the way that they believe will create the most dramatic effect. They call it creative license. The odd thing is that real trials often constitute the most dramatic events of the participants' lives. And this fact cannot be duplicated. It can be imitated, but it will always lack the one thing that makes a trial one of the most nerve-wracking and dramatic experiences for everyone involved in our society. And that thing is consequences. Now, I cannot impress upon you enough the amount of pressure that is felt by the attorneys that are fighting in that courtroom. Whether they are fighting on behalf of the victims and their families to try and bring them justice, or they are fighting to defend their client who claims that they are innocent. The pressure is felt by the victims' families who sit in the courtroom, helpless, left only to observe as they watch people they don't really know, advocating on behalf of their loved one and themselves, as they have decided to trust the system by not taking matters into their own hands. And many times, that is a big ask. Maybe the biggest ask there is. And what about the defendant, who is either being represented by a public defender who has been appointed to their case, or by private counsel who has been hired as they have entrusted the fate of their lives into this person's hands. Now, my father was a public defender for many years preceding the Gacy case, and there are many outstanding attorneys that are public defenders, yet, as a defendant that doesn't have the resources to select an attorney of their own choosing, who they have been able to vet, research, and interview, which is oftentimes many different attorneys, before making an educated decision, who is given no choice but to place their lives into that attorney's hands when they are appointed a public defender. It's nothing more than a wing and a prayer proposition. And all they can do is hope. And what they hope for, at the very least, is that they were appointed a competent trial attorney. Now, I want you to try and imagine a scenario where you've been accused of a crime that you are truly innocent of and that you lack the resources to pick your own attorney and are appointed one, sight unseen, to handle your case. A case in which your life hangs in the balance. What must that feel like? 
And if you've been listening to us since the beginning, you know that we're big on trying to have you walk a mile in other people's shoes on our pod. And we do that because it gives you context. And hopefully, it makes you think about these things in a slightly different way than you did before. And I mean this when I say this, that we sincerely hope that we have accomplished this with you over the last season and a half, because it truly is our intent. All that being said, there is simply no equivalent to the pressure that is felt by criminal trial attorneys in any profession. And that includes doctors who are performing surgeries to save someone's lives, because in a trial, it is sustained pressure many times for weeks at a time. And ultimately, the decision is left in either the hands of a judge or a jury, as they are the fact finder. They are the ones who make the final determination that will seal the defendant's fate. And believe me, when the jury leaves the jury box to begin its deliberations, there is no more helpless feeling than that for both the prosecutor and the defense, because the reality is, No matter how strong your case was, no matter how well each attorney told their version of the story, the fact is that no lawyer ever knows what a jury is going to do. And that, my friends, is a stone-cold fact. So why have we tried to impress this all upon you at this time? Well, because... We are now going to start feeding you the facts that the state of Nebraska relied on in coming up with their narrative, their story that would be ultimately told to the jury through the use of witnesses, evidence, and ultimately argument. And we are choosing to give it to you piecemeal as opposed to all at one time. And we are doing it in this way because none of us, not one of us, can have our entire lives neatly summarized when someone is cherry-picking through all of the events that have occurred during the course of our lives in order to form a narrative that is created only to serve the ends of securing that person's conviction. It is a most dangerous game that's being played, and one in which that the final result can be the most extreme consequence. That being death. Death, death. Welcome to Defense Diaries. I'm your host, Bob Mata, and this is episode 12. Ad maiorum dei gloriam. We left off last episode with the interrogation of Rob Gerber, the former male stripper, who, quite frankly, appears to have some of the worst pickup lines that I've ever heard. They are so bad, in fact, that the recipient of one of his unwanted advances believes that this guy may, in fact, be a murderer. Talking about going down in flames. Detective Scott Warner grills Gerber and walks away from the interview not necessarily thinking that he's the guy, but nevertheless wants him connected to a lie box in order to try and determine if he's full of shit. In early July, Omaha PD Sergeant Ken Kanger follows up on a tip that came in from an apparent true crime enthusiast 
who also happens to be a writer with the Omaha World Herald named Catherine. Kanger listens intently as she proceeds to tell him about a friend of a friend who she believes has beef with Creighton Medical School and further believes that he looks a hell of a lot like the man depicted in the composite sketch. She believes that this guy Morgan very well may be responsible for the Hunter Sherman killings. Now, Kanker lets Catherine say her piece and then terminates the call. At the end, he's left feeling less than enthusiastic about the prospects of Morgan being the responsible party for the Dundee killings. So much so that it doesn't appear from what we were tendered in Discovery that Kanger or any other officer ever followed up with the Morgan lead in any way. Now, it's interesting to note that Catherine is the second person to come forward with a possible connection to the Creighton Medical School. And it's safe to say that a seed has been planted in the minds of the Omaha Police Department. A seed that would begin to germinate in May of 2013 and ultimately would lead to the arrest of Dr. Anthony Garcia. In light of the sputtering investigation, Omaha PD is bound and determined to leave no stone unturned. And as such, they have started looking into the staff at the King Science Center, the school in which Thomas attended. Now, they started with the interviews of the custodial and janitorial staff. Officer John Bali was charged with the task of conducting the interviews of these fine folks, and it became very clear in very short order that none of these people had been familiar with Thomas Hunter prior to the homicides taking place as they all indicated that it was the kids whose messes they had to clean up with whom they were familiar with, not the kids who left little or no footprint within the school. The custodial staff ends up being yet another dead end. Omaha will still interview the teachers and admins as well as the bus drivers, but none of these prospects are seeming to fit the profile of the type of killer that they are looking for. Well. That gets us up to speed, so let's dig in. On July 15th of 2008, Detective Scott Warner, as is customary when a case is starting to get chilly, was circling back to re-interview the original eyewitnesses that had gotten a good look at the stranger. Now, this is done because on rare occasions, eyewitnesses may recollect something that they forgot to tell the police during the initial interview. So on this day, Warner reaches out to Paul Medine in order to see if he'd be willing to speak with him again. Medine, of course, is game. So Warner jumps into his cruiser and makes his way to Medine's house, which is located in the Hunter's neighborhood. Now, if you recall, Medine was the witness who I consider to have gotten the best look at the stranger. And as he followed him for a substantial distance and proceeded to watch him walk up to the front door of the Hunter's home, and ring the bell. All the while, he was waiting for his young son to catch up to him as he had fallen behind. Warner arrives at the house and Medine invites him in. Warner asks Medine to simply go through with him what Medine observed on March 13th of 2008. Now, prior to getting to Medine's, Warner had taken the time to read Medine's two previous interviews. So Warner has a pretty good idea just exactly what Medine had seen. So as Medine works his way through what he saw, initially, it coincides with his earlier statements. However, 
When Medine begins discussing the point in time when he was walking behind the stranger with his kid and added detail surfaces, Medine states that as the stranger was walking northbound on 54th Street, that at some point he believed that the stranger had stumbled on the sidewalk. But then, several moments later, the stranger did it again, which then made Medine believe that the stranger did not in fact stumble at all, but rather had a unique medical issue which caused the stranger's feet to fling out to either side. Medine termed it as an unusual gait, so unusual in fact that he didn't recall ever seeing anything like it before. Warner then asks Medine why he hadn't mentioned this initially when he spoke with the police. Medine didn't recall what he had or hadn't told the police initially, but that there was a reason that this particular fact had entered his mind. Warner inquired as to what that was. Medine tells Warner that about a month ago, in mid-June, that he was at a doctor's appointment at a professional building north of the West Roads, and that as he was leaving the building after his appointment, that a bald-headed man, who was also exiting the building, opened the door and held it open, allowing for Medine to walk out first. Medine tells Warner that he didn't think anything of it at the time, other than it was a polite gesture. That was until he took a look back and saw the man walking off, presumably to his vehicle, and was immediately struck by the man's gait, the exact same unusual gait that he observed on March 13th, with the feet flipping out to the sides. He then stopped and turned around to get a better look at the individual, and realized in his mind that he looked exactly like the man he had seen on the day of the murders. Except now, the party had no hair. Medine then tells Warner that he immediately called Officer Yetz and gave her the license plate of the vehicle that the man entered. Warner takes down the notes and thinks to himself that he has not seen a follow-up report by Yetz with respect to this new information and makes a note to ask her about it when he gets back to the station. At this point, Warner pulls out the composite sketch and hands it to Medine. He looks at it, studies it carefully, and then tells Warner that even though he was a part of the group that helped with putting the sketch together, that this composite doesn't look anything like the stranger that he saw walking down the street that day. Warner asks him what's different. Medine tells him that he can't put his finger on it exactly. But if they were able to find the party that he saw that day coming out of the doctor's office? Hey y'all, Bob here. So I just want to let you guys know why I love Nom Nom, the sponsor of the show. That's because our dog, Nanook, who's been an intricate part of our family for the last four years, is the pickiest eater out of any dog on the planet. We would give him the best of the best in terms of dry food, and the guy just was not having it. That all changed when the first box of Nom Nom came to our house. I cut open the package. I like to treat him a little bit, so I heat it up just a little bit, put it in a bowl, gone instantly every single time the dude loves nom nom i can tell by the way he just devours it because i've never seen him eat like that before and the reason that he loves it is because that nom noms made with real wholesome ingredients that you can see when you pour it into the bowl it's like you can actually see the meat you can see the vegetables it's unbelievable and they personalize it to your dog's needs so it brings out their very best 
I mean, this guy has boundless energy these days. I bring him out on his walks and he's doing all the things that he loves to do. He's running and jumping and playing, tails going a million miles an hour. It's an amazing product and it really has changed our dog's life. And our dog is such a huge, huge part of our life. It makes me feel good about what we've been able to do for him. So I cannot recommend more. If you have a dog in your life, treat them. Treat them like the king or the queen that they are in your family and go right now for 50% off for your no-risk two-week trial at nom.com slash dd. That is nom.com slash dd for 50% off with a guaranteed return if your dog doesn't love it. And I can guarantee you, you're not going to be returning anything. Again, that is nom.com slash dd for 50% off. You can thank me later. That guy looks exactly like the stranger. Minus the hair, of course. Medine then walks Warner along the path that he had taken on the 13th and explains to him where and what he had seen along the route. Warner thanks Medine and terminates the interview. So, Warner just got some new information from the person who had gotten the best look at the stranger. And a detail like an unusual gait or a limp is a potentially huge lead. Unless, of course, the stranger had the wherewithal to fake the strange gate. But that seems like a rather minute detail to be going through a person's mind as they were preparing mentally to go kill an innocent child. Now, this fact about the gate would come up at trial. Now, we won't get into the details now, but just store this little fact in the back of your brain somewhere for future use. Meanwhile, also during the course of the month of July... Detective Warner goes to the YMCA to get information about the Hunter family's use of the facilities, which primarily consisted of Claire, Bill, and Thomas. Warner proceeds to speak with multiple employees of the Y, including a woman named Judy, who is able to provide Warner with a printout of the Hunter's family's membership card swipes over the last several years. The printout reveals that Thomas was rarely at the facility, other than the times when his basketball league was either practicing or playing a game. And the card swipes show that he was always with one of the hunters when this occurred. So based on the information that Warner received from the various staff, it did not appear that Thomas Hunter was ever at the facility without one of his parents being there with him. Thus, the predator angle, stemming from a chance encounter at the YMCA, seemed like a non-starter to Warner. The investigation continues. Meanwhile, Officer John Bolly is assigned to talk to the owners and employees of a contracting company and a flooring company that had done work in the Hunter's home for about two and a half months in February of 2007. Bolly proceeds to interview both owners of both the companies and several of the employees. None of the employees had any consistent contact with Thomas Hunter during the time that they were in the home and none of them had anything unusual to report that they had observed. Looks like just another brick in the wall. Now, at this period of time in July and August of 2008, Omaha PD has looked at everybody that was closest to the Hunters and to Shirley Sherman. They've questioned Thomas's friends and schoolmates, the entire staff and other employees of Thomas's school, all the contractors that had been in the Hunters' home, the YMCA staff where recreational time was spent, and they have been hunting down and interviewing kids that interacted with Tom online. 
They have followed up on a majority of the tips that have come in on the hotline. And yet, despite all of that effort and police work, Omaha PD is no closer to making an arrest than they were on the day of the killings. Simply put, despite their best efforts, they just have not been able to make the connection to who was capable and motivated to commit these crimes. And they're running out of options. What remains are potential DNA profiles that need to come back from the lab, of which they have no idea whether a profile was left by the killer or not. One of the issues with DNA is that if a potential profile has been left at the scene and it is run in CODIS and no hits come back, that means either the killer's DNA is not in the system or the profile simply doesn't belong to the killer at all and could be anyone that had been in the Hunter home at any point in time. At this point, they have been unable to secure Lepore's DNA and they are still searching for the Russian. The potential Creighton connection is the one angle that OPD has not spent a lot of time pursuing during the first months of the investigation. And the lone person that they have set their sights on is the Russian. The question as to why they have chosen solely to focus their attention on only the Russian, when Alberico gave them a list of five potentially disgruntled former employees only days after the murder occurred, is a mystery. Especially in light of the report written by Officer Linda Yetz on July 22nd of 2008. Now, this particular report consists of 16 pages and involves a swath of time that covers a portion of Yetz's investigation into the murders that spans from April 22nd of 08 through June 11th of 08. That being said, there are two items in this lengthy report that are of particular interest. First, it is this report, which wasn't prepared until after Scott Warner talked to Paul Medine in his follow-up interview, where Yetz reports that she followed up on the call that Paul Medine made alerting her to the fact that he had just seen a man that looked exactly like the stranger. This report states the following, quote, On June 8th, 2008, reporting officer got a call from witness Paul Medine. Medine states that he had been at his doctor's office earlier that day and that he had observed a black male party who walked like the party Medine had seen on the day of the homicide. Medine described this party as a black male with a very distinctive walk. Now, I'm curious why she repeats herself there. That's something that happens when people are rushing through their work. Uh, let's get back to it. Medine stated the man walked like a duck. Medine stated that he watched this party and that the party had gotten into a vehicle with a personalized plate that said, Mortaf, M-O-R-E-T-A-F. The following day, reporting officer ran an NCJIS check on the plate. Mortaf is registered to a red 2004 Honda Odyssey sports van. End quote. The report goes on to state that the vehicle is registered to a female. So, Yetz runs another check on the last name and runs it with a wild card for the first name and ends up coming with a hit for a black male that lived at the same address as the female owner of the vehicle. Yetz is also able to determine where this individual is employed. She ends this portion of the report stating the following, quote, 
Reporting Officer Yetz did not have time to follow up any further on this, and Detective Warner went to re-interview Paul Medine. Paul Medine brought up the telephone call and the plate on the van. When talking with Warner, Medine stated that he was sure that this was the party that he had seen at or around the Hunter's residence on the 13th of March. Detective Warner, Detective Moise, and I are following up on this. Wait, isn't Yetz too busy? See Detective Warner's SUP report for further information. Now, I'm not sure what you guys think, but this is a CYA report if I've ever seen one. In the event that this gentleman turns out to be the guy, the guy that Medine saw, and Yetz failed to do any type of follow-up after she received the information, yeah, that is the impetus of a CYA report. Because one thing is evident from this report, and that is that Yetz didn't follow up on the call from Medine until after Warner came to talk to her about the re-interview with Medine. It's evident because Yetz doesn't note in her report the day that she ran the report on the plate. It's also curious that Warner's report does not state that Medine told him that the man that he saw at the doctor's office was black. Remember, it was Medine that without question got the longest and best look at the stranger. And Medine was very clear with Warner that the composite sketch did not look like the stranger. But the man at the doctor's office, well, he looked exactly like the stranger. We shall see if Warner follows up on this lead. And it will also be interesting to see if the state calls Paul Medine as a witness at trial. It would seem that the state would have to call the witness who got the best look at the man they believed killed both Shirley Sherman and Tom Hunter. But only time will tell. Now, the second very interesting portion of this report is noted to have occurred on May 11th of 2008. And again, I will read verbatim what the report states. Quote, Dr. William Hunter emailed reporting officer Yetz asking advice about an upcoming article in the Omaha World Herald. What the reporter from the Herald was asking was basically for Dr. Hunter to get back in touch with them to verify some of the information they wanted to put in the article. Dr. Hunter was advised not to talk to the press. Also in that email, Dr. Hunter listed two other individuals. He was involved with their terminations in 2001. Those parties were Anthony Garcia, he gives a date of birth for Garcia of 6-773, and his social security number. Hunter states that Garcia was a resident at Creighton from 2001 through 2002. The second party was Brian Wang, whose date of birth and social security number are also supplied. Dr. Hunter states that these two residents were involved in unprofessional conduct and were dismissed. Dr. Hunter states that, quote, we were always professional with one another, and I don't think they bore a grudge toward me. The reason I even mention this incident is that several months ago, Garcia was disciplined by the Louisiana State Licensing Board because he lied on his application for his state license. When asked if he had ever been disciplined or terminated, he said, no, end quote. Now, I'm jumping ahead a little bit here, but I have to tell you that that particular fact that was contained within that email from William Hunter became the absolute linchpin of the state's narrative. 
I find it rather incredible that Linda Yetz didn't think anything of it at that time. We'll see how it plays out. But as far as the report goes, Yetz has no further comment with regards to this information that was provided to her on May 11th of 2008, which indicates that she did nothing in terms of following up, nor did she pass the information on to another officer who may have had more time to investigate this potential lead. Would Warner have included Garcia within the warrants he just sent out with regards to credit reports of the Russian and others that would give him banking and phone carrier information, both of which could have been used to show if Garcia was in the state of Nebraska at the time of the murders. Now, we would love to be able to ask him this question, but we have a sneaking suspicion that he will not be eager to interview with us. So, I guess we'll never know. Now, I want you to remember that it was Linda Yetz that spoke with Angie Alberico on March 17th of 2008 at Creighton, where she was given a list of names that included Anthony Garcia. So she was supplied with the name of the man that they ended up arresting and charging with the murders on two separate occasions. Yet, she elected never to follow up, which ultimately resulted in the Omaha Police Department collecting zero evidence against Garcia when he was arrested in 2013 as far as him being involved with the Hunter Sherman murders. Now, I could go on a rather long diatribe right now, but we will save that for a later date, as it will become a major point of contention during the case. So for all the good work that Yetz did early on, in retrospect, her failure to do anything for five years, mind you, with this potential lead, seemingly may have cost the Brumbacks their lives if Garcia is, in fact, the real killer. Meanwhile, back at the station, on July 24th at approximately 11.15 a.m., Rob Gerber walks into the police station to take a polygraph test. Warner had decided during his initial interview with Gerber that he was, in fact, a person of interest. And Warner informs the examiner when he briefs him prior to hooking Gerber up to the machine of this exact fact. The examiner explains to Gerber that the examination is completely voluntary and that if at any time he wishes to stop the test or no longer wishes to speak to the examiner, that he can do so. Gerber tells him that he understands. Gerber is also read his rights, which he proceeds to waive. Gerber is then connected to the machine and the examination begins. The examiner begins asking basic questions, such as his name and current address, in order to establish a baseline chart. After the examiner has run approximately one and a half charts, which include the two relevant questions of, do you know for sure who inflicted the injuries to Shirley Sherman and Thomas Hunter that resulted in their deaths? And did you inflict the injuries to Shirley and Thomas resulting in their deaths? Gerber advises him at this point that he's beginning to feel lightheaded and that the blood seems to be rushing from his head. Quote, I'm not feeling well, he tells the examiner, who quotes that Gerber is sweating profusely 
around his head, face, and arms. I really need to stop this test so that I can compose myself, he tells the examiner. The examiner stops the test, and he notes that Gerber is breathing heavily. I'm going to either faint or puke, and and I'm not sure which one, but I'm not right. I'm nervous, and I'm scared of the questions that you're going to ask me and that you have asked me. This is an important test, and I don't want to lose my kids. The examiner attempts to calm Gerber's nerves by telling him that if he simply tells the truth, that he'll have nothing to worry about. This does nothing to calm Gerber's nerves. As he declares, I had nothing to do with those murders. I swear to God, I understand how important it is for the families, the victims, that they find the killers, but I am terrified that the police think that I have something to do with it. The examiner leaves the room and tells Warner that Gerber is freaking out. Warner enters the room. What's going on, Rob? I'm freaking out here. I I can't believe that you think that I had something to do with these murders. I'm scared. Is that going to screw with my results of the test? I've never taken one before. I, I don't know what to do. What if the guy thinks that I'm lying when I'm really just nervous and scared? Are you going to arrest me? No, Rob. We aren't going to arrest you when we don't think that you killed Tom and Shirley. We just need to be able to clear you. And this test is one way for us to do that. Now, do you want to try and finish this thing, Rob? I don't know. I guess, but I'm scared. Not because I did anything, but because I don't know how this thing works. How does it tell the difference between someone who is nervous and someone who is lying? Warner can see he's about to lose this guy. Look, Rob, I'm not sure because I'm not the trained examiner, but the man in that room is, and I promise you that he can tell the difference. So what do you say? (sighs) Okay, I guess let's get it over with. Warner and the examiner proceed to give Gerber 10 minutes to try and get himself under control. Then the examiner enters the room and asks Gerber if he's ready. Gerber unenthusiastically tells him yes. He proceeds to hook Gerber back up, and after Gerber completes only one polygram, which is one tracing by the polygraph machine, Gerber declares that he's done, and he wants to wait until he feels better. Warner comes in and tells Gerber that he needs to reschedule the test, and Gerber agrees. But before he allows Gerber to leave the station, Warner asks Gerber if he will voluntarily provide a DNA sample. Gerber readily agrees and allows Warner to take a buccal swab from the interior of his cheeks. After Gerber leaves, Warner pops his head into the room and asks the examiner, were you able to get anything off what he answered? The examiner looks at Warner and tells him, no, I can't form an opinion as to whether or not he was being truthful. Shit. Well, at least we got his DNA, Warner mutters to himself. On the following day, Warner heads over to the county jail and informs the lieutenant on duty that he needs their help in getting a DNA sample from an inmate named Adrian Lepore. Warner tells the lieutenant that Lepore has refused to voluntarily give a sample, so they need for the jail to retrieve items that Lepore has used that would possibly contain a DNA sample, like his toothbrush. He also informs the lieutenant that he needs them to set up a meeting with Lepore 
and ask Lepore if he needs a glass of water or something, and, when the meeting is over, that they grab the glass that he drank from. The lieutenant tells Warner that they can do both of those things. On July 29th, Warner is contacted by a Sergeant Ernest Black from the jail. He advises Warner that they just had a meeting with Lepore in the admission manager's office, at which time they offered him a glass of water, which Lepore happily accepted. The sergeant confirmed that Lepore did in fact drink from the glass. He also informs Warner that Lepore tried to wipe the styrofoam glass clean before leaving the meeting, but that they were able to grab the cup before Lepore could wipe the glass clean. The sergeant further advised that the cup had been placed in a clear plastic evidence bag and was ready to be picked up. Oh, and we got his toothbrush from the cell, too. Warner thanks him and terminates the call. On July 30th, Warner meets Sergeant Black at the jail and is handed both items. Lepore's DNA has been secured. That DNA sample would turn out to be the last piece of substantive potential evidence that the Omaha Police Department would put their hands on for the next four years. The months begin to steamroll by as the investigation into the brutal double homicide seemingly is stuck in the mud. In the months leading up to December of 2008, Omaha PD is left with little to investigate other than Crime Stopper tips that continue to flow in, due primarily to the rather large reward that sits idly by, tempting all of those who may have had even the slightest notion who may have committed the crimes. The eyewitnesses are visited yet again in the hopes that they can provide that one bit of information that may lead OPD down a new path. But this too, once again, bears no fruit. Lepore's DNA, which was collected and analyzed, does not come back as a match to any of the samples that were collected in the hunter's home. So despite follow-up interviews with Lepore's parents and former girlfriend, who all make clear that Lepore suffers from both addiction and mental illness, and has shown violent tendencies in the past, the DNA, well, it tells the real tale. And that is that Lepore is not the guy. Yet another lead dries up and dies on the vine. So it's during this period of time from August through November of 2008 that the investigation slows to a crawl, with the exception of one person that Omaha PD continues to track down. The one and only former Creighton employee that inexplicably they've decided to investigate. With the help of the Pittsburgh Homicide Division, as well as Interpol, they are finally provided with the home address of the elusive Russian doctor. And in mid-December of 2008, Scott Warner will take a trip to visit our friendly neighbors up north to finally sit down with the man that he considers to be Omaha PD's last and best option in trying to determine who killed Tom Hunter and Shirley Sherman. Will Warner be able to extract the information he needs from the Russian to name him as a suspect in the Dundee killings? Find out on the next episode of Defense Diaries. Hey guys, you know we're all about planting seeds here on the pod. So that's exactly what we're going to do. 
And we want to let you know and remind you that in August, we are attending both the Dark History Horror Con, which is an absolutely killer, see what I did there, lineup of celebrities from the worlds of horror and true crime for your entertainment. That's taking place on August 19th and 20th in Champaign, Illinois. And the True Crime Podcast Festival, which is being held in Dallas, Texas, which is the following weekend, August 26th through the 28th. Both events are going to be an absolute blast. At the True Crime Podcast Festival, I will be joining Josh Hallmark, the creator and host of the brilliant podcast, True Crime Bullshit, for an amazing panel discussing the sickly, fascinating serial killer, Israel Keys. And I'll also be doing a roundtable discussion with the incomparable Charlie Worrell, host of the phenomenal podcast, Crime Lines. There will be links to purchase tickets to both of these cons in the show notes, so make sure to get your tickets and join in on the fun. Also, we're extremely excited to announce that we'll be hitting the road for live shows. We anticipate that the first event will be in October with a location to be determined, but it will include a killer lineup of other podcasts, and we will have an evening of mirth and merriment whilst discussing all things true crime. Hey, and don't forget to rate and review the pod on Apple and Spotify. It lets others know what you already know, that our pods worth their valuable time. And finally, thank you to our gorgeous patrons for your continued support. We couldn't be doing this without you giving what you give. And finally, finally, to you, our brilliant listeners, thanks for listening each and every week, because as you already know, but... It bears repeating every episode. Without you, I'd just be an old man talking about an old case. Talking to you next time. <laughs>